wondering this morning if you've ever been in a large crowd, really large crowd at an event of some kind. I have on many occasions. And I find there's, there's nothing like being in a crowd. There's just something about it. There's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of expectation. There's an atmosphere that you don't get if you're watching football or rugby or even cricket, some of you know I'm slightly interested in, on your own. There's something about being in the crowd. And in Matthew 21, 1 to 11, we read about a large crowd, a crowd that is excited, a crowd that is full of expectation. So let's read these verses together. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. And the heading in the Bible is, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he! Who comes in the name of the Lord? Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They'd followed Jesus around Palestine for three years. They'd heard the wonderful things that he said. They'd seen the amazing things that he did. And now, at last, this Jesus was coming for the first time to the capital. Coming into Jerusalem. They were excited because they had many reasons to believe that this person was the Messiah the Messiah who the prophets had spoken about, the Messiah that the Jews had been expecting for centuries would come and set up God's kingdom. And here he was, coming in to Jerusalem. Is it any wonder they were excited? Is it any wonder they were full of expectancy? Is it any wonder there was an atmosphere like never before on the road, on the road into Jerusalem. You see, when the Messiah came, they believed that he would get rid of the power that was governing them at the time, which was now, of course, the Romans. He would set their country free 
from their domination as a first step to going on to conquer the whole world and to set up a kingdom that would never end. A kingdom you could mark in, you could colour in on a map and that they, the Jewish people, would reign with their Messiah. They were fed up of other people ruling over them. It was the, if it wasn't the Assyrians, it was the Syrians, and then it was the Babylonians, and then it's the Greeks, and now it's the Romans, and we're fed up to the back teeth with it. It's time we were liberated. It was time that we were the rulers of the world for a change. And boy, is it going to happen now. Here's the Messiah. He's coming into Jerusalem. This is it, folks. This is the moment we've been waiting for for centuries and we're here to see it. We are privileged to see it. We're going to see amazing things happen now. And when you're in a crowd, if my experience is anything to go by, you do things you wouldn't normally do. You scream at the referee. You shout. You sing. You dance. You clap. You jump around. And here we see a crowd singing. Shouting, jumping around, dancing. In my imagination anyway they would be. Laying down a red carpet if you like in the form of their cloaks. Waving their flags and shouting at the top of their voices. Hosanna to the son of David. What does that mean? Hosanna means praises. Sing praises. It also has the meaning of savers, savers now. So praises to the Messiah is what they're saying because you see, son of David was a title of the Messiah. And now Jesus was allowing people to speak of him as the Messiah. For three years, when he'd done anything miraculous, he said to people, don't tell anybody what's happened to you. And that was because he didn't want the secret of his messiahship to get out before he was ready to declare it publicly. And here it is. He's declaring it publicly. He doesn't stop them shouting Hosanna. He doesn't stop them calling him the son of David. Why? Because this is the moment. This is the time. This is the arrival of the Messiah in the city. And the crowd are so thrilled because their cherished dream of centuries is about to be fulfilled. You know, also when you're in a crowd, you can get a bit carried along, carried along by the emotion of the moment, so much so that you actually miss, you actually miss what's really happening. I remember once back in the 70s, long before seating was brought into football grounds, I went to see Leicester City versus Arsenal in a cup tie. And the ground was absolutely packed. You literally could not move to your left or to your right or forward or backwards. And if the crowd decided to go left, you went left. And if the crowd decided to go right, you went right. You had absolutely no choice in the matter. You were carried along by the crowd and you were carried along by the emotion of the match and what was going on. So much so, I was unable to see half the game because of where I was. But that's how it was. You were all packed in. And you know, this crowd that gathered on what we call Palm Sunday failed to see it. They failed 
to see what was really going on. They missed it. They missed it. They missed the significance of the donkey. It was all about Jesus, of course. But it was all about the donkey. Zechariah had prophesied it. And Matthew, of course, who at every possible opportunity in his gospel refers to prophecy and quotes it, does so in verse 5. Did you notice? Quoted what the prophet Zechariah said and how Zechariah had told them that their king would come on a donkey. A donkey, riding a donkey. This is a picture of meekness. It's a picture of gentleness. It's a picture of peacefulness. Jesus did not come into Jerusalem riding a stallion. He did not come riding a war horse. Now, if you look at pictures of all the leaders, past battle leaders in history, you'll see them on horseback. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, choose who you will. On horseback. Because up on the horse there, it says, look at me. I'm the one in control. I have the power. You follow me. That's the message of the horse. Can you imagine Alexander the Great or Napoleon riding into battle on a donkey? Charge! If you've ever ridden donkeys on uh, beaches like I have, when I was little, of course, um, I was little once, um, you'll know what I mean. They take some moving, do donkeys. But you see, this was the symbolism of it all. This was the significance of it all, and they missed it. They were so carried along by the emotion of the moment that they missed it. You see, the significance of it was this. Jesus is showing that the kingdom of God is not going to be set up by people responding to the power of his armies, but rather by responding to the power of his love. That the kingdom of God won't be brought in through violence and revolution as they expected it to be, but through his sacrificial death on the cross. And as far as they are concerned, messiahs don't die. And if you look at this account in Luke chapter 19, particularly verses 41 to 44, it tells us there that on his journey into Jerusalem, Jesus stops. Jesus stops. Why does he stop? He stops and weeps over Jerusalem. Floods of tears at this triumphant moment of welcome. Floods of tears. Why? He's weeping over the city and weeping over the nation, which it is symbolic of, because they refuse to accept his way. And they persist in their desire for violent revolution, which ultimately will lead to the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city itself, and even of the whole nation. And that will happen 
in AD 70. That's why Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. They refuse to accept my way. They refuse to accept God's way. They want it their way. But you know what fires my soul? When I ponder the events of Palm Sunday onwards, it's this. What fires my soul is the meekness. The meekness of our wonderful Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He is the King of power and glory. And yet, and yet he is characterised by meekness. Now the Greek word for meekness is priotes. And that can also be translated humble. Humble. Because you see, meekness is humility in action. And throughout his ministry, we see the meekness of Jesus. Jesus even speaks of himself as being, I quote from Matthew eleven twenty nine, meek and lowly in heart. Just how Jesus describes himself, meek and lowly in heart. And we see this meekness of our Lord Jesus writ large during Passion Week, during Holy Week, beginning here on the road in to Jerusalem where he's carried by a donkey which ultimately led him out of Jerusalem on the road to Calvary carrying a cross. Now you see, what Jesus does and doesn't do when he finally arrives in the city is very significant. And we need to grasp it. He doesn't respond to their hosannas, their calls for salvation, by going to the Roman fortress and making a stirring speech to fight and to set their country free. That's what they expected. That's what they wanted. That was their heart's desire. It didn't happen. What does he do? Where does he go? He doesn't go to the Roman fortress. He goes to the temple. He goes to the temple. And in so doing, he's saying, this is my focus. This is where my focus is, not on overthrowing the Romans. Now, incidentally, and if I've got time, I could unpack this for you a bit more, but I haven't, but the Messiah was expected to appear at the temple and he was expected to do spectacular things. Think back with me, just for a moment, to the temptation. Right at the start, before Jesus started his ministry. Remember the three temptations? One of them was to do with the temple. Do you remember it? Go and stand on the top of the temple and throw yourself down. Do something spectacular to prove to the people you're the Messiah. Of course, Jesus rejects it because that was the worldly way, the Jewish way of thinking about the Messiah and what he was going to do. But it was a temptation because that's what the people wanted. But Jesus rejects it. He knows where his path leads. 
His path leads to the cross. And then we see this meekness displayed when he arrives at the temple. If you look at verses 12 and 13, you see what he does there. He overthrows all the tables of the money changers and he drives the people out. There was utter confusion and chaos in the court of the Gentiles. And you might be saying to me, now come on Ray, how can he doing that, throwing out the people and wrecking the place, be described as meekness? What we see, see here is meekness, that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength. Meekness is quite the opposite to what people think. It's strength. Now, Jesus' righteous but controlled anger was aroused at what the temple had become and what was happening there. You see, it was a complete racket, what was going on in the temple. It was supposed to be what Jesus described as a house of prayer. That's what it's supposed to be, a house of prayer for all nations. And he says, you've turned it into a den of thieves, a robber's cave, whatever version of the Bible you happen to have in front of you. And they'd done it in this way. When you went to sacrifice, you had to have an animal that was pure and spotless without blemish. So over on one side, you've got the people with the animals and a sign-up, if you like, saying, guaranteed, without spot or blemish. But, of course, you couldn't buy that animal with the money that you used in everyday life for trading and all that sort of thing. Oh, no, you had to use temple money, if you like, holy money. And so you had to exchange them. We had to queue up at the little bureau de change and you had to wait there and you had to exchange your shekels or whatever they were, your denarii or whatever you'd got in your pocket. You had to exchange it for temple money. And guess what they do with the rate of exchange? Oh, yes. It was a complete racket. First of all, you had to be absolutely swindled on the rate of exchange and then you had to buy these Spotless animals, so guaranteed. So the worshippers were exploited. And Jesus is so angry when he sees this. My house is supposed to be a house. Welcome is supposed to be where the nations can come and find God. And what have you turned it into? You've turned it into a commercial racket. Overwent the tables. Animals flying around everywhere. You picture the scene. But what happened when Jesus had left the temple? Do you ever wonder that? And my guess is they put it all back and they carried on as if he'd never been there. So we might think, what was the point of it then? What was the point of this display of meekness? Well, it was to get across two important messages. Simply put, some of you will think simplistically put, but the alternative is a one-hour Bible study, and I didn't think that was quite appropriate for this morning. Simply put, first of all this, that the system of offering sacrifices for forgiveness was coming to an end. 
over it goes, out with it. And secondly, that the temple itself, which represented the Jewish nation, was doomed. It was doomed to destruction, destroying things, overturning the tables. That's what's going to happen. It's doomed to destruction because it's failed. It's failed to bring God's light to the world. It's failed to accept the way of God, Jesus' way of bringing in the kingdom. And it all happened. By the time we get to AD 70, at the end of four years of war, under the leadership of other so-called messiahs who were more to the people's taste, they fought the Romans and they got absolutely hammered. And the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, and the nation was scattered throughout the world because they rejected the way of the king of kings. And it was prophesied, Jesus prophesied, it all going to happen. He told them. If you read Matthew 24 and Mark 13, which comes between Palm Sunday and <coughs> crucifixion, that's what's going to happen. See, the ten- temple was not going to be central to the kingdom of God as the Jews believed it would be. In fact, they expected the Messiah to rebuild the temple, not to destroy it. But what was going to be central was Jesus himself. Through his death and resurrection, he was going to take the central role, not the temple, in establishing the kingdom of God. And so we move on from the temple and we come to the Last Supper. And we see this meekness displayed at the Last Supper. What does Jesus do there? In John 13, he washes his disciples' feet. He washes his disciples' feet. Now this, let me remind you, was the task not just of a slave, but of the lowest slave. This was what the apprentice got to do. Wash people's feet. The task of the lowest slave. What a wonderful example this is of servanthood. Servanthood. Verses 14 to 15 of John 13, we read, You should also wash one another's feet, says Jesus. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Washing the feet. What meekness. The king of glory on his knees with a towel and a basin of water and he's washing their feet. Meekness. He even washes the feet of Peter, who would deny him. He even washes the feet of Simon the Zealot, who wanted revolution and would be incredibly disappointed that he wasn't getting it. And he washes the feet of Judas Iscariot, who's going to betray him. The meekness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we move on. We move on to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus submits to what God wants him to do. We read about it in Matthew 26, for example. And there we see Jesus sweating great drops of blood as he wrestles and he comes to terms with the whole thing of what's required of him, not just the physical thing of crucifixion, 
But the fact that he is going to become sin for us, the, the whole psychological, mental, emotional thing of it. And he's got to go through this suffering, this cup as he calls it. And in verse 39 he says, My father, if it is possible... You can hear him weeping and sobbing and crying as he says it. May this cup be taken from me. It's the next words though, isn't it? That just grab your soul. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What submission? And later down in verse 42, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in the garden and we see it when they come to arrest him. You remember how the disciples drew swords and wanted to fight and resist. And in the, the, a melee takes place. And in the confusion and the swords swishing about, the high priest servant loses his ear. It's cut off. And Jesus just brings it. Stop! Stop it! No more of this, Luke twenty-two fifty-one. 51. No more of this. And then what does he do? I think this is... To me, he's just such a wonderful moment and every time I read it, it brings tears to my eyes, I have to tell you. In the midst of all that's going on, the arrest, knowing what he's got to face, you'd think his mind would be elsewhere other than on one of his enemies who's come to arrest him having their ears sliced off. But no. These wonderful words. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Just, just see the context of it all. Just see the meekness. You know, this is not going to happen like this. This is not what should be going on. I'm going to put it right. And he heals the man's ear. What an example of gentleness. What an example it is to us of blessing those who oppose him. And he goes on. And he says, we don't need this. Do you not think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way. That's Matthew 26, 53 to 54. Obedience, you see, is at the heart of meekness. Jesus is obedient and he allows all that follows to happen to him when he could have escaped from it, had he wished to. Call for the 12 legions of angels. Let's sort this lot out now. It's not God's way. It's not the way of violence and revolution. It was the way of the cross and we move on. And he's taken and put on trial. And we see this meekness displayed there at his trials. Now you may not be aware, but Jesus had two trials. In fact, some would say he had three. But the third one I never count because that's just kind of an examination by an interested Herod. Then he gets sent back. So I'm not going there. I'm focusing on those two. First a trial before the Jews and the Jewish council. 
And whatever happened, the second one in front of the Romans, he remained silent in the face of all the charges that are levelled against him. And of the floggings that he has to endure, he remains silent. Doesn't complain, he does not struggle, he allows it to happen to him meekly, as Isaiah prophesied. Many of you will be aware of the suffering servant um, songs in Isaiah. There are four of them. We don't look at the first three normally. We always focus on this one, which is a shame because there's some wonderful stuff in the others. But chapter 53 of Isaiah and verse 7 says that he, meaning God's servant, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Meekness. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. Meekness. So he did not open his mouth. He only speaks when, at the Jewish trial, Caiaphas, the high priest, the sort of presiding judge, if you like, who, by the way, is presiding over a trial that under Jewish law is totally, totally illegal. First of all, it's being held at night. Secondly, whenever evidence contradicted, you were supposed to dismiss the, the case. He hasn't found any evidence that he can build a case on, so he's desperate. And in desperation, he commits a third breach of the laws by asking Jesus a leading and incriminating question. Are you the Messiah? And of course, then Jesus speaks. And he says, yes, I am. Or you say that I am. And this means that they can find him guilty of blasphemy, which under Jewish law, not under Roman law, but under Jewish law, is punishable by death. And he only speaks at his Roman trial when he's taken before Pontius Pilate, when Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And many of that Palm Sunday crowd would have been there at his trial before Pilate. You see, the Romans had to be involved because although the Jews could pass the death penalty, they couldn't carry it out. Only the Romans could do that under Roman law at that time. Because if the Jews had been able to carry it out, Jesus would have been stoned and not crucified. Have you ever been in a disappointed crowd? Have you ever felt the atmosphere turning, things changing? can see some of you have from the looks on your faces. I have. Crowds, particularly sporting crowds, are notoriously fickle and they can turn. They can turn very quickly against people who were once popular. A football crowd very quickly turns on the manager or the chairman when they're not doing what they're supposed to do, in the opinion of the crowd, and things are not happening as they wanted. And this was a crowd that turned. And it turned spectacularly. Why had they turned against Jesus? Well, if you've been following through what I said, you can answer that question for yourself. Simply because he didn't do what they expected him to do. Because, you see, they thought meekness was weakness. Couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Messiahs don't let this sort of thing happen to them. Messiahs don't walk this way. So five days later, the same crowd who welcomed him as their king, their Messiah, were baying for his blood. And Hosanna had turned. 
Hosanna had turned to crucify. And the cries of Son of David had turned. They turned to cries for the release of Barabbas, a notorious criminal. And you know, today, people still turn. They turn against Jesus when they find out who he really is, just as that crowd did. In other words, he's not just a good teacher or a good example. He's the Son of God. And we can't cope with that. We want to file him away in a box of our own making. But I tell you this morning, Jesus will not fit into our boxes. Jesus turns our way of thinking. He turns it. He turns it upside down. He meekly rides into our lives on a donkey and he says, what are you going to do with me? So how will you respond? Are you going to turn him away from from your life today? Or are you going to turn to him in repentance, asking for his forgiveness and allowing him to turn your life around? Which? If you want to talk about that, the prayer team will be delighted to speak to you afterwards or speak to me or speak to David. We would love to tell you more about this. You see, this is only possible, Christ turning our lives around, Christ as being to experience God's love and forgiveness and peace in our lives, is only possible because Jesus chose the path of meekness, not the path of legions of angels. The path of meekness that led him out of Jerusalem on the road to Calvary where he was crucified. There on that cross, he became our sacrifice, taking our sin upon himself. This is the wonder of it. I don't care how many times I hear this, I can't get enough of it. He took our sin upon himself and he paid the price for our cleansing and forgiveness so that we, you and I and anyone can have a personal relationship with God. And as that crowd stood at the cross, They thought they were watching a humiliation. They thought they were watching a humiliation. But what they were actually seeing was humility. Humility, not humiliation. They were seeing priorities. They were seeing humility in action. The king of glory dying on a cross. Look at that wonderful passage in Philippians 2. They were seeing humility personified. They were witnessing a display of meekness, yet at the same time a display of majesty and strength such as the world has never ever seen and will never ever see again. A display characterised by humbleness, submission, obedience, And above all, agape love. So what should our response be to Christ's agape love for us? Well, I suggest to you this morning, our response should first and foremost be worship. Worship. When we see what Christ has done for us, the meek Christ on the meek donkey going to his meek death, Worship. 
And we remember that part of our worship is to live our life. It's to live lives characterised by meekness. Ephesians 4.2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. And writing to Timothy, Paul says, 1 Timothy 6 verse 11, Follow after meekness. Now having seen the example Jesus gave us of meekness, you've probably been able to just pick out the qualities that are required of someone who's being meek. But let's just summarise it as we conclude. What does it mean to be meek in our daily lives? Well, here's some examples. It means submitting. It means submitting to God's ways rather than following our own ways. It means serving God with a servant spirit rather than with a spirit of pride. It means obeying his teachings by putting them into practice rather than nodding at them and then conforming to the pattern of the world. It means being teachable and self-disciplined rather than stubborn and self-willed. It means being gentle towards others and blessing them, even those who oppose us, rather than being unkind, without mercy, selfish and vengeful. It means showing righteous, controlled anger against injustice and standing up for what is right in God's sight rather than ignoring what's happening in society. When I was just putting that list together, I thought, this is so hard. This is so hard to do, Lord, to be meek like you were. How can we do it? We can only do it as God helps us and enables us to be meek yet strong followers of our meek yet majestic king. We're going to conclude by singing a song that Graham Kendrick wrote some years ago in which he focused on meekness. And the band are going to come up and get themselves ready. Well, I just point out some of the words that as we sing them, take them into your heart, grab them, go away with them in your soul, rejoicing at the meekness of Christ and what it means for us. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity. This is it kneels in humility and does what? Washes our feet. Father's pure radiance, perfect in innocence, yet learns obedience. Obedience to death on a cross. Suffering to give us life. Conquering through sacrifice. Not through legions of angels or the way of violence and revolution, but conquering through sacrifice. And as they crucify Praise, Father, forgive. Oh, what a mystery. 
meekness and majesty and our response. Bow down and worship. Bow down and worship. For this is your God. Let's sing together. Thank you.